Jesus name and I know that that was uh you might have to turn this mic down just a little bit in the monitors but you know it, it was a time that we came before him and we we had to say God you're all I want and in all reality sometimes I think people have the idea that we have to be perfect before we cry out to him or we speak out to him or we request anything from him but in all reality uh, that's not the case. That's not the way that it is. But it, when we come before him and we begin to feel his sweet presence in this place and the joy of the Lord and his wonderfulness inside of this house tonight, we can just reach out to him no matter what state we're in and we can say, God, I desire you tonight. I desire your word. I desire what you have for me. I want to learn about you. I want to experience you like I've never experienced you before. We can ask him and request those things tonight, no matter what has happened around us. And so tonight, I think that that would be great to just let that be our prayer tonight. God, I want you and I desire you in Jesus' name. Let's just lift our hands together as a sign of unity tonight. And let's just ask that of God. God, we come before you tonight, Lord, because we desire you. We are in your house because we desire your presence, God. And we want to be in your midst, Lord, that as your spirit moves, Jesus, we want it to pour into our hearts and into our minds, God, that we desire desire that word to be wrote deep down on our hearts, God, so that it would not be lost, God, but that it would be with us for all of eternity, God. No matter what we have brought with us tonight, God, we clear the, the slate, God. We begin to move that out of the way, Jesus, so that we can see you and your language, God, and the things that you have for us tonight, God. Help us to connect on that deep level with you, Jesus, in this place. And God, I believe that you will do that for every one of us, God. That whatever we have came with, God, we can be free from it, God, tonight. And we can walk out of these doors, God, freely delivered in your name, God, that in your presence, Jesus, it does not just have to stay here, God, but that it can go home with us and it can go beyond that in Jesus' name. And we believe that tonight, God, for every person that is here in this place, God, in Jesus' name. And we believe that here. If you believe that tonight, let's just praise him and thank him for his wonderful presence in this place. Hallelujah. What a mighty God we serve in Jesus' name. If you would like to be seated tonight, you certainly can. And uh, we have some papers for you if you do not have a book and uh, a pencil in, in Jesus' name so you can follow along. We are going to finish this, uh, this month of lessons today. And uh, it has some very uh, good information here as well. And uh, so I'm excited about it. We're going to be following... Um, the, the chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, and so you can turn there in your Bibles um, and kind of follow along. We'll have some scripture on the screen, and I'm not going to read everything from that chapter, but it's your homework assignment when you do go home to read those things and to look into them and um, see what God might speak to you through that. So um, we'll, we'll go forward with that. But before we do that, just a few quick announcements. Again, these microphones that are hanging from the ceiling here, they are live on Wednesday nights. And so if you don't want to um, have your gossip about the drummer and how terrible he is in this church um, heard on all the live stream and that sort of thing, please be careful talking around the platform because if we accidentally leave the live stream going, it will record you and it will put you out there. So if you, <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. If we, if we happen to, uh, 
if we happen to put something out there and you, you get home and you think, oh man, I talked in front of the microphone, let me know. We can take the video down. We can delete that portion of it or, or that sort of thing. So it's not like the end of the world, but it will be out there for some, some time period for somebody to hear. So just, uh, just remember that and we're, we're just seeing if they, they work for, for some people that are listening on the live stream. Um, the, the other thing with that, uh, the back door of the church, we discussed this in the business meeting, we are going to lock that at the start of the services. So the back door of the, the church is going to be locked from the outside. You can still go out this direction, but you just can't come in through the door. And the reason being is that we have all of our children's ministries and things back there, and we have cameras watching that, but obviously it's an area where somebody could come in and potentially go into one of our classrooms and that sort of thing. And we just, we want to be safe. You know, we, we trust in God that he will protect us here, and we have people who are armed and carry in this church as a result of that. Um, but, but, you know, we, we, we pray around the church, and we believe that God will protect us, but there's also responsibility we have to use the tools and the resources that God has given to us um, to, to do those things as well. And, and so we wanted to protect our children and the youth and those things that are back there. So once service starts, if somebody's late, they're just going to have to come in through the front door. It's just kind of that, that simple. So they have to come this direction. Uh, just kind of a, a better solution. So remember that, um, you know, if you go out that door, you might get locked out and have to come in the, the front door and that sort of thing. So um, not that big of a deal and, and all of that as well. Uh, I don't believe there's anything else on the, the calendar, though. Sister Carnahan, maybe she can tell us. I didn't write those things down beforehand, so I'm slacking tonight. All right. Well, awesome. The Carnahans will be gone this weekend, so we need to keep them in our prayers in Jesus' name as they fly and travel. And Pastor Carnahan's mother is 100 years old and celebrating that in her birthday. So that's a, that's a pretty incredible thing in Jesus' name. And Yes. So, you know, I don't think he would like me saying this, but, you know, I, I would be excited if he's still around in the church in 100 years. And, uh, yeah, with us in Jesus' name. Because, man, the wisdom that would come from that. Wow. All right. We can do that. That is. Yeah. So, in Jesus' name. But, no, I'm just, uh, just throwing that out there, just saying. So, um, anyway. We, uh, we have this wonderful lesson that we're going to be speaking about here tonight. Does anybody remember what we spoke about last time? It was a pretty good message. It's good to have you guys back, by the way. We missed y'all, and we're excited to have you back. We're jealous, but we're, we're glad to have you back. We want to hear some stories in Jesus' name. So does anybody remember what we spoke about last time, last, uh, last Wednesday? Being ready. Yes, being ready, because Jesus is going to... He's coming back. He's going to return, right? So he will be back at some point in time. And no matter who we are or who we think we are, we will all face that day that Jesus returns and he is standing before us. And, and we will have a decision that we will have to make before that time comes because nobody knows when that time is going to come. No matter how much prediction we can do or how much work or effort we put into mathematics and all these other things, nobody will ever know when Jesus is coming back exactly. But we do know what's going to happen. We see signs around the world. And we see prophecy inside of the Bible that has continued to unfold. And if you've never went through some of the Old Testament prophecy, prophesying what will happen in the old times, I, I suggest that you do that and begin to research some of that because it's, it's, it's already unfolded. The nation of Israel forming is a prophecy that's in the Bible. It's something that's there, and we see that it happened. And we see many other prophecies that are beginning to form and, and take place inside of our world. And so, as a result, we know that times are getting closer. And if somebody 2,000, 3,000 years ago was able to just magically somehow guess that these things would happen, then so be it. But we all understand that that's not how it worked, that God spoke to somebody 
and gave them wisdom so that they could write those things down and, and we understand them in our world today. And so now we, we can begin to have that formed. And so that's kind of why we're speaking about these things here. And so um, we're talking tonight is that the best is yet to come. We, we have this world and this life and these things that we're living in. Maybe you're, you're loving it, but maybe you're super disappointed in it. I don't know where you're at in that spectrum. But, but we, we all are here somewhere. But there is still better yet to come. There's things that we are going to experience and things that are going to be exciting and places that we're going to go. And that's what we're going to talk about here tonight is that, 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 that better is yet to come. And so... Um, I hate to do this to you, Sister Carnahan, but can you pull up 1 Corinthians 15, 54? And I know it's the first scripture on the screen, but I want to read one more after that. Actually, if we could all turn there, 1 Corinthians 15 and 50, actually, is a scripture I would like to go to. And uh, I'm going to kind of start in, in verse 50 there. And if you haven't, if, if this chapter is somewhat confusing to you, I encourage you to read it in the New King James Version because it becomes a lot more clear um, when you read it in that, and it, and it doesn't change much at all. And it says this in verse 50, it says this, Now this I say, brethren, and this is Paul writing this, he says, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doeth corruption inherit incorruption. So it's a scripture that's speaking to us that this flesh and blood that we have on us, that's not going to be the thing that inherits the kingdom of God. We're not going to walk in there with this, this same flesh that we have on our skin here, because ultimately our flesh desires sin. It, it, it's, it's a sinful nature. We see that Adam and Eve fell, and we're going to discuss that kind of throughout these lessons. But we see that, that as a result, flesh is the thing that's not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So that's why it's saying corruption cannot inherit something that is incorruptible, which the kingdom of God and, and walking around in heaven and stuff is something that is incorruptible. It's not going to be destroyed or tainted, and God doesn't want it to be destroyed or tainted. And so we can't go in there with the flesh that we have on now because it would not work that way. But it says this in 51, it says, Behold, I show you a mystery, that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And it's speaking about death there, that we're all not just going to die and completely disappear um, once we, we face death, that we're not just going to fall asleep and never wake up and that sort of thing, but we are going to be changed when we face that moment of death. It says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. What that's saying there is that if we have heard the salvation plan of God, and if we are actively seeking God and trying to form that plan inside of our lives and work through it and continue forward, if we're actively trying to repent when we're sinning and that sort of thing, and we're seeking the face of God, then when he returns and that loud trumpet sounds, whether we have passed away before that or whether we're alive when that happens, this body that we have upon us is going to be changed into an immortal body that is going to be able to last for a long time and be able to go to his kingdom with him. And it's an incredible thing in Jesus' name. So it says this in verse 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption. So it's talking, this stuff must go away so we can put on something better. And this mortal, meaning this piece of us that can die right now and disappear, it must put on immortality so that we can live for eternity. He's, he's trying to draw these conclusions that there's what we, where we're living now, but there's going to be a place or a better thing that we're going to be living in later on in Jesus' name. I, I understand this can be confusing if this is your first time ever experiencing the kingdom of God, but it, it's, it's very real and we can go into Bible studies on that later on. But verse 54, it says, So when this corruptible 
shall have put on the incorruption or incorruption. This mortal shall have put on immortality. Then shall we be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And it goes on to say, O death, where is your sting? And O grave, where is your victory? Meaning that we may die and go to a grave one day, but it doesn't have victory over us. That people around us, they, they, they decide sometimes in some of these countries, not, not necessarily in America, but they decide to kill a Christian person because they're speaking these things and they think that they're doing them a great disfavor by taking that person's life. But in reality to all of us, if somebody takes our life and we go to the grave, we understand that that's not the end of it. That that's not the place where it cuts it off. So if you want to put me in the grave, so be it. But there's no victory over that. And you can think that you have victory over me in that, but I know that there's something better that's going to come from that. That, that I'm going to be able to go to a place that is much better than this around here. And, and not that I don't like you all in that sort of thing. But I, I, do, I would rather spend my time in the presence of Jesus and his glory and, 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 and the things that come with heaven in Jesus' name. Those are the things there. So that's what this is saying. It says again that the sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. So it's saying that's that sin, these things that we have on us, this, um, it, this mortal part of us, that it's, it's that sin. But thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain of the Lord." Like we spoke about last time, some people disagree with us about believing about that. They say God isn't real, that you know, heaven isn't real, that these things, these, what we feel in here is all made up and that sort of thing. But this tells us that even in the midst of all of that, that we are meant to be steadfast, unmovable, abounding in the work of God. And, and that, that means that we are solidified to the point where we say, you know what, I'm going to trust in the scripture and what is inside of this Bible rather than what somebody is telling me from their conclusion of some scientific theory that they haven't even proven and that sort of thing. That, that, that's what I'm going to trust in this here because the things in this book have become more accurate in my life and the prophecies have became more real and, and, and that sort of thing than, than any textbook that I've ever read inside of college or high school and, and all of that. It, it's, it's very real. So we must search this scripture here in Jesus' name. And so you can see why we're, we're speaking about what we are speaking about tonight. So let me read this here because this is kind of interesting, and, and I think you will find it interesting as well. It says, at a certain point in the aging process, we tend to think more about our youth. We have little snapshots or vignettes of uh, bygone days in our minds, and mine include listening to an early uh, music radio show called The Old Camp Meeting Time on a local radio station in southwest Missouri. The host of the show played lots of southern gospel music and Christian bluegrass with it. It seemed his tongue firmly planted in his cheek, and I vividly remember him saying, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. This was a quote there. Kind of changing subjects here, this person named Alan Sinclair, he does not want his death to be permanent. After he dies, his blood will be flushed from his body and replaced with antifreeze. Technicians will then cool the body with dry ice and fly it to this center in Michigan. And the center will keep it at a minus 320 degrees. When a solution is found for whatever has killed him, future technicians will thaw him out Cure Alan, or cured Allen will exist on earth once more 
and his wife has already died and undergone the same solution that he wants to undergo. The Christian hope is that God will resurrect us from the dead, just as our Lord Jesus resurrected. In the newly resurrected state, we will need no cure because the main cause of death, sin, will have already been taken care of. Like Alan Sinclair, many people would take a pass on death if they could. We have been told that death is our enemy, and the Bible does say that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. But death is an enemy that has been swallowed up in victory, as we just read. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promised resurrection of all who are in Christ, there is no longer any sting in death or victory in the grave, if we think about those things in Jesus' name. And so an interesting question to ask yourself is if there was a scientific development advanced enough to potentially save your body now until later on in the world, and then you could come back alive and that sort of thing, would you do it? Would you take advantage of that. And I think many of us in this place would say, man, that I do not want to have any part of that. But man, if it's my time, it's my time to go on that sort of thing. And this may sound super sci-fi, but it's very real and it's out there and it's alive. In Europe, and, and we don't do this in America, but when somebody has a heart attack, they actually do a similar process to this where they will actually uh, kill that person, freeze them, and they, they will take their body and, and basically move them to a trauma center where they have a lot more advanced techniques. And then they will slowly start to bring that person out of that death state so that they can immediately begin working on them inside of a very secure environment. It's crazy, these techniques that people are coming up. So when we talk about this thing of people, humankind, trying to extend people's bodies out a long distance, it's here and it's, it's well that people are trying to skip over what God has done inside of this world. But ultimately... We're all going to face it, whether you extend your life out or whether you can find uh, the fountain of youth and that sort of stuff. There's still going to be a place, a time when you face death no matter what. And so I don't want to have a piece of it, but if you do, so be it. That's your thing. The Bible says that it's appointed to man wants to die, and I don't really want to begin to, to go through some of those things that God has already spoken about in Jesus' name. So let's look at what this says here. It says the context of 1 Corinthians 15 is concerned with the resurrection of the dead. This is what Paul is specifically addressing here. And, and in this lesson, it kind of addresses these things verse by verse. And I, I'm going to try to do somewhat similar to that because I think there's a lot that we can glean from this. But it's somewhat difficult for me to transfer all that he has wrote in this lesson to you all uh, because of, of all the details and the, the big words that he has used in some of these things in Jesus' name. But I hope to present this to you because in, in reality, there's people around us that say that the resurrection has already occurred and we missed it. There's people that say that it's never going to come at all. There's other religions that believe that Jesus Christ is not the Savior of those things. And so tonight I present these things to you because I want you to know that the resurrection is very real. It's very alive. It's something that is going to happen and we can be excited about it happening because it has not happened yet in Jesus' name. And this scripture is the one that tells you that if you begin to look into that. So in verses 1 through 8, we see that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an integral part of the gospel. It's something that is essential. What Paul is telling us in those verses there is he is saying that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so essential that if you remove it, then every part of the gospel just begins to topple over like a domino's house or something. That You, you take one of those pieces out and it just begins to fall and crumble beneath. He's saying that the, the, the belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, 
and you claim to not believe this, then you're foolish because you completely topple the whole gospel and everything that is inside of that. And so throughout this entire context of this chapter, you have to understand that he is trying to address people who are struggling with this idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if you read that, you will see that eventually he begins to try to prove these points. He says, well, Jesus Christ went to the grave, and he died on, on a cross, and, and he went to this grave in this tomb, and they rolled the, the tomb in front of it. And we know the Easter story that, you know, eventually that, that tomb was rolled back, and Jesus came out, and he was alive and well in that glorified body. And, man, he was able to walk around, and uh, he, he's Jesus. He's alive and well today because of that and, and those sort of things. And so when Jesus did that, he's saying that there was something significant about that, that he was showing it's not just going to stop there but it's going to continue forward. And not only that, but he begins to prove his, his subject by saying there were 500 people that saw Jesus alive after Jesus was inside of that tomb. And plus you had all of these empires and the Romans and all these people that were searching for him adamantly because they wanted to find him and throw him back in there because they didn't know what was going to, to happen. And they posted guards outside of that tomb because they, they were so worried about the resurrection happening that, that they, they had to post these guards there and that sort of thing. So all these things just begin to show us that the resurrection was real, and then it happened. And so in verse 12, we can see that there were some among this Corinthian church who denied the resurrection of the dead. They said, well, it might have happened for Jesus, but it is not going to happen for people here in this world. And, and you, for those of you who have not read the Bible or maybe don't understand these things, a lot of the, 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 the uh, books inside of the Bible are wrote to specific churches or specific people. So this book of Corinthians is wrote to the church of Corinth. It's, a, it's, it's wrote specifically to people addressing circumstances that were happening in that environment or inside of that city. So Paul is specifically addressing these people here. But some things inside of this chapter, obviously we can see that some people here were saying, man, that resurrection isn't going to happen or it's not real. Or maybe we're coming up with some other ideas about what Jesus was going to do through that. So this is what Paul was specifically trying to address. And so it says that the gospel is stripped of its core if we begin to take this out. Verses 14 through 16, he begins to just you know, confirm that over and over again. And in verse 17, he says that to not deny the resurrection of Christ is to deny his redemptive work. Everything that he's done before that, the dying on the cross, the crown of thorns, living with no sin inside of his life, it's useless if you don't believe in a resurrection. There, there's no power or part of this, this thing if you don't believe in a resurrection. That's how crucial this is in our doctrine and what we believe. And he goes on to say that this would mean that those who died in their faith in Christ have perished and are completely gone now. That everything that they have done, Abraham, Isaac, uh, you know, you, you could go down the list of all these people in the Old Testament, Noah, the, the, these men of faith, everything that these guys have done, living for their, their entire lives, just sacrificing unto God, doing nothing but living for God and speaking to people. What Elijah did, standing before all the prophets of Baal and destroying them and that sort of stuff. If there is no resurrection, he's saying there is no point for these people to live for Christ because they just die and they perish. They've wasted their whole lives doing something but just walking around and they become dust like they were at the beginning. It makes the whole Christian faith begin to fall apart. So he's making this very clear for many verses in the beginning part of this. And he continues to say that a denial of the resurrection leaves believers hopeless and to be pitied. It leaves us hopeless and to be pitied. And what a shame that would be if there is no resurrection, if there is no Jesus coming back and the trumpet sounding and us going to heaven, then all of this 
is just a waste. But we understand that that's not what is going to happen in Jesus' name. And it's great. It's great. And so despite the claims of some of the Corinthians, there is going to be a resurrection. It's going to happen in Jesus' name. And, and I, I, there, there's too much to cover inside of this to go into depth. But man, I, I could just try to prove this in so many ways. But in reality, I don't need to prove what God is already doing because it's evident in his scripture. It's evident in your lives. It's evident in the things that he is doing around us. There's no way we could come up and make up so many things to make this thing work and conform to what he is doing here. And so the proof of this, it's seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that that was clearly documented, that he rose from the dead. It's amazing that all these historians and things like that, all of these say that uh, the ones who are, are not Christians, they say that Jesus Christ, um, that, that he was a man. They will say absolutely he was alive and well. We see it in writings. We see him on walls. We see it plastered around and that sort of thing. And these same historians that claim that Jesus was never God, that there is no God and that sort of thing, they turn to the Bible as their document to form how history was before the time of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's amazing that people do these sort of things. They completely deny Jesus Christ and his power, but yet they say that there is enough inside of the Bible and enough truth there that we're going to use the stories of the Bible to understand what happened around us. Well, if the stories of the Bible are true, then there was a flood that occurred. There was a resurrection that occurred. There were things that happened around this. I mean, it begins to, to blow your mind on some of those things that begin to happen. And a lot of these people that try to prove the Bible wrong, you will see that they eventually change their mind to say, okay, I'm starting to believe that there is something here. But a lot of them will begin to resist more truth from that in Jesus' name. And so we see that this was the intervention of one who was not only man, but he was also God. We believe in one God, not the Trinity, but we believe in one God. We believe that Jesus was that one God that was manifest in the flesh. And so tonight, I am not going to try to confuse you by these scriptures that we're going to get into, but we are going to get into some deeper stuff tonight. And so to, to, to give you that idea, God, who is a spirit, could not, uh, I mean, he's here dwelling with us right now, but we can't see him because he is a spirit. It's like the wind, the Bible begins to say. So for God to come down here and be amongst us and dwell there, there at that presence, he wrapped himself in flesh just like you and I have, and he became Jesus. So Jesus was God in the flesh walking around in our midst as well. Jesus still had flesh like you and I have. Jesus still had to get the, rid of that flesh like you and I have so that he could go on to, to, to the, these places here as well. And, and we will see that a little bit later on. But still, it is the same God that is in Jesus, that, the God that dwells above us in Jesus' name. And so all humans are identified with Adam and death. We understand that Adam sinned and, and death, meaning that he separated himself from God. So we are identified with him, that we are people who sin ever since his time. And so those who are in Christ are identified with Christ in his life, including his resurrection. And I want to be identified with Christ. And the way that we become identified with Christ is by what happened Sunday night back there. There was a baptismal tank and water, and it was nice and warm in Jesus' name. And that young lady went down inside of that baptismal tank and came out a new creature. She, she died just as Jesus Christ has died for us. And when she came out, a brand new creature in Jesus' name. That's how we begin to start this process of saying, I want this, this enrobing that Jesus had. I want that upon my life as well. And then we let him fill us with the gift of the Holy Ghost, and we begin to walk with him. 
And so Christ's coming is the point at time in which the resurrection of those who are in Christ will absolutely occur. And we see that in verse 23 of the scripture. Before our next point, verses 24 and 25 says that all opposition to Christ's rule will come to an end at the point of the resurrection. Everything that resists Christ's rule will come to an end. If you think about that, there will be no president, there will be no nation, there will be no person, there will be no whatever you want to say, space force, I mean, you could come up with wild ideas, aliens, there will be nothing that is powerful enough to come against the presence of God. When that resurrection happens, he will now put his foot down and he will say, this thing is mine 100%, and there will be no Satan, there will be nothing coming against his kingdom at that point in time, but he will absolutely shut that, that, those doors and shut that thing down. So we can believe in that and we can trust in that in Jesus' name. So the cool thing about this is that the final enemy that Christ will destroy, or that, that will be destroyed by Christ, is death itself. We just read in the scripture, right, that death does not have any sting, that it does not have any victory over us. And why does it not have victory over us? Because Christ himself, when he comes back and resurrects us from the dead that day, we are not going to be in a grave for all of eternity, but we are going to be living with him, dwelling with him for all of eternity in Jesus' name. And you can try to understand that inside of your mind. And I've tried before when I was younger to, to understand how long eternity is, thinking hundreds and days and, you know, like just going on. And it begins to hurt your mind and give you a headache if you think about it too long and how big it is. But you just have to trust that, man, it is an incredible amount of time. There really is no limit on that time when you talk about eternity. And so Christ Jesus, he, he has defeated death that is there among us. It is the resurrection that indicates the destruction of this enemy in verse 26. And when the universal subjection of everything to Christ is fully realized, the Son himself will be subject to God in order that God may be all in all in verse 28. And this is where I don't want to begin to confuse you because this talks about how the Son will be subject to God in order that God may be all in all. And what this is speaking about is that Jesus, that, that flesh that was down here and it's now in that glorified body, is going to be subject to that, that spirit over all these things here. And, and we'll get into that. I'm not going to dive too deep without looking into this, but, but it's, it's speaking this here. So you, you'll see that by the end of this tonight. So let me ask you this question. Since we say that we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the promise of eternal life in the presence of Jesus, why do we fear death? Why, why do you think we fear death? Because it, it hurts. Yeah. Anybody else? Suffering? Yes. Fear of the unknown. Yeah. Leaving people behind. Yeah. It's hard. Very much so. Not ready to die. Uh, yeah, I think that could be a strong fear. Not trusting Jesus. Is he going to be there on that side? Yeah. Amen. Yes, unfinished business. Hmm. Yeah, what would happen to those left behind? Wow, I mean, yeah, I think we could keep going here, but we, we said some pretty strong ones. It, they're there. It's alive and well, and we're all human, so we understand that no matter how much we say we love Jesus and we, we believe in this, it's there. It's a very real fear that we have to overcome and understand that we need to overcome to understand his resurrection in Jesus' name. And so, again, 
this here. It says that if there is no resurrection from the dead, it's pointless to be baptized. If there is no resurrection, it's pointless because baptism is a representation of the resurrection and of, of Jesus going to that, that tomb and coming out of it and that sort of thing. So there'd be no reason to be baptized if this was not true. And neither is there any point in oneself uh, in, in putting oneself in jeopardy for this gospel or putting yourself out there and preaching this gospel or doing any of those things that people do to, to speak this thing. And so we see that Jesus was willing to, faith, uh, to, to face death daily. And I have uh, heard some people, so I'll read this as well. It says the denial of the resurrection was a dangerous and corrupting or the, the denial of the resurrection was a dangerous and corrupting teaching that would encourage sinful behavior. And so anybody who denied the resurrection was basically encouraging people to go out there and do bad things. I've, I've heard some people say that religion is just a way of keeping mankind in line. That basically some, some super smart people developed religion so that they could see people being kept in line because people won't want to do immoral things because they would think that they wouldn't go to heaven if they didn't do that. I've had people tell me that, that you know, back in the caveman days, they, they wanted to keep their, their tribes in, in the group, and so they decided to, that they, they were going to form religion to keep people in line with, with what they were believing in that sort of stuff. So they formed the Gospels and, and put all the work of all these things in there to try to do that sort of stuff. I mean, it's crazy to think that. But if, if that's really true, if, 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 the, if the gospel is so good at keeping people in line and in order, then why on earth were there so many governments inside of the Bible that tried to absolutely shut it down and squash it and squish it because they were fearful of what it was doing throughout the land and the things that it was beginning to take place? It does not make sense to have that argument in that sense there. So again, when you begin to remove the resurrection, the, the, I mean, these, these people's argument begins to fall apart. It begins to squash and become nothing that's there. That this is not just some book to keep people in line and keep humanity going the right direction and there is no God and that sort of stuff. No, that is not true. That is not real. This book is alive and it's well and it's speaking to us. And we understand that if it says there is a resurrection, then it is there and we should listen to what it has to say. And so... Continuing forward, it says this, that those who denied the resurrection thought that they could stymie or basically kind of slow down or put a halt on the teaching with the question about the nature of the resurrected body. And so these people, since they, they didn't want to necessarily believe in the resurrection, they decided that they were going to put a, a halt on this by coming out with some confusing, confusing questions about what the body would be like after that. And so Paul begins to address this in the next verses, in, beginning in verse 36. He says that those, uh, these are foolish questions, however, because they ignore the changes that take place in conjunction with death, there is a connection between our present body and the resurrected body, but it is the relationship between seed and fruit in these scriptures. So what he is saying here is that even though these people are coming up with these questions, they're not truly understanding that we become something different when we are resurrected in the kingdom of God, that we don't have the same flesh that is upon us right here. It's not the same stuff that begins to go to us to heaven, but, but it's a glorified body. It's changed. It's, it's something that doesn't have all the needs of our body right now, of food and emotional things and all this other stuff. It's, not, it's beginning to separate from all those things. And I realize I'm touching on a million areas here that we could dive deep into and do Bible studies on, but I'm trying to give you a brief overview of this because there's, there's so much inside of this chapter. And so 
Again, that, so the resurrected body, it differs in significant ways from our present body in verses 39 through 44. Just as believers has been, have been identified with Adam in our present body, meaning that we're sinful, we will also be identified with Christ in the resurrected body. So we're identified with Adam in this current body, but like Jesus rose from the dead and he, he's alive and he's walking around and that sort of thing, we will be identified with him when we are resurrected in Jesus' name. That's an incredible thing when you begin to think about it. And so it will involve a transformation from the corruptible mortal body to an incorruptible immortal body in verse 53. And at this point, death, the final enemy, is conquered by Christ because it can no longer touch us and completely strip us from everything that we have. And so it says this, that the doctrine of the resurrection, it provides believers with hope. It gives us hope that we can strive for something greater in Jesus' name. That coming to church and giving up some other things in our lives so that we can be in church and be involved in these things, that giving up a few minutes so that we can read the Bible, that it's all worth it because one day it's going to develop into something that's much more massive than just a few minutes of sitting down reading the scripture right now. I think it's incredible to lay hands on the sick and see them recover and see these wonderful miracles and that sort of thing, but that's not the big picture when we think about it. That's not the true hope that we need to believe in and be all excited about. The true hope that we need to believe in is that one day you and I are going to be walking around and dancing together and, and playing tambourines and we can play them on beat and we can do all these sort of things in Jesus' name and do it for his kingdom and we'll be, be in this place where we no longer have all these issues around us and drama. And I mean, you could just go down the list of things that we'll be freed from in Jesus' name. That's the hope that's inside of this. That's the reality that is there. And so it's, it's incredible. You can think about this in your own mind, and I think I've kind of expressed this, but why does the gospel message require resurrection from the dead? I think it's kind of quite simple what we spoke about here, what's on the screen. Why do we need the resurrection from the dead? Because without it, there is no hope. And without hope, there is no point in doing the things that we're doing. So we must be excited about this resurrection in Jesus' name. And so as apostolic people, we may be puzzled by aspects of 1 Corinthians 15. For instance, what does it mean to say that Christ will deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father? And how shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all? But when we have challenging texts, it is the wrong move to ignore them or shut them down and say, well, I'm just not going to touch that. that that's what, what some religions do out there. That's what some Christian denominations do out there is they, they begin to face some challenging scripture and they say, well, we're going to shy away from that because that, that doesn't seem to line up with what we believe. No, if what we're doing here is based upon this Bible, then we need to take every scripture that's in that Bible head on and, and trust that this scripture is telling us what is real and accurate and if we're doing something wrong, we need to change our beliefs to understand what, what the Scripture is saying. We, we need to change our beliefs to adjust to what the Scripture is saying in Jesus' name. So when we're ch faced with these challenges, let's take them on. So when we have a challenge, it's the wrong thing to ignore them. We must study them prayerfully and carefully, asking God for insight and clarity of thought so that we can rightly divide the word of truth as the Scripture teaches us. Because we want to do that in His kingdom. And so as it relates to this scripture, it is quite helpful to remember that the verses appear in a context that defends the idea of the resurrection 
from the dead, including the resurrection of Christ, against those who denied this resurrection. So like I said at the beginning, Paul is defending this against people who wanted to attack it. And so in the scripture here, if it will go, you might have to click the next one for me. I can't get it to go. It's acting up a little bit. So verse 24, it says, So then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down the rule and all authority and power. So Jesus, if he's going to deliver this up to God, then what are we talking about, one God, and why are we talking about these things here? And so that's what we're going to dig into tonight, because we're going to take it head on in Jesus' name. And I hope that I, I explain it well and, and don't confuse anybody. And Pastor Carnan, if I start confusing people, you might have to jump in and get us on the right path in Jesus' name. So what this scripture is saying here, and I'm thankful for our pastor in Jesus' name. This marks the end, and it signals Christ's final victory over all opposition. The Greek word translated then in this scripture, it indicates that the end follows the second coming. So when Jesus returns, the end of the world is going to follow shortly thereafter. In the same verse, the pronoun he refers to Christ. So it's referring to Christ doing this. When the writers of the New Testament use Christ, it seemed to be intentional. The emphasis is on the incarnation. God is manifest and genuine in full human existence. If, if God did not come down here and put on the flesh, he would not be able to die for all of our sins and for us to be able to be baptized later on and have all of our sins washed away. There, it would be impossible. It would not work, and, and that's kind of a Bible study in itself. But it is this God-man who will terminate all opposition and who will deliver the kingdom to God the Father, who we know him as. God the Father refers to God transcendent, God above and beyond the simple incarnation of Jesus Christ. It does not mean that God the Father is in no way identified with the Son or that these are two separate beings. It does not mean that these are two separate beings. But, as Jesus said, the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. Jesus is so genuinely and thoroughly God that he said, if you had known me, you have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and you have seen him. Jesus is making strong points here in multiple scriptures that I am he and he is me. That we're one and the same. Indeed, when Philip asked Jesus to show the disciples the Father, Jesus answered, have I been with you so long? And yet you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? Because I'm him, Philip. You're looking at him right now. God the Father, in this scripture, it is a reference to God transcendent. The Son of God is a reference to God incarnate. And the Holy Spirit is a reference to God eminent. So let, let me just kind of break this down. I know those are some big weird words there. God transcended. The Bible says that God is a spirit. It's, the, it's God who dwells over the entire universe. He's so big that I've told you all that time itself dwells in his midst. So that's why there was no beginning to God. There will be no end to God because time itself dwells inside of him. And I know that's hard for us to understand in our minds that there's no beginning and no end. How does that work? We, we can't understand it. We never will until we get to heaven and we speak to him. So this is God transcendent, the, the big God, the, the one who knows the big picture, the one who formed the world and that, that sort of thing. And so when it says that um, the that, that Son of God is a reference to God incarnate, it's speaking about God with us. 
as we learned about during the Christmas season. This is that big God putting that flesh on and coming down in our midst so that we can dwell amongst him and he can die for every one of our sins. It's the same God there. And then when it speaks about the Holy Spirit, it reference to God imminent, it's speaking that obviously Jesus isn't walking right here, that, that, that sort of thing around us where we can touch him and feel him like in the New Testament. He's not here right now until he comes back on the second coming. And so because he's not, the Holy Spirit is what we have inside of us. That big God who is transcendent is now that same spirit that's dwelling inside of every one of us. He's imminent. He's here. He's around us in our midst. And so the same God who is transcendent is also incarnate, and he is also imminent. He is also here. Another example to give to you in the Old Testament, he showed up by the fire and by the cloud. He was Put, he put himself, began to mold himself inside of those things to the people. And, and that's how they showed, or that's how they were able to see God at that time. They didn't have his, his spirit like we have it now in most of their circumstances. And so God has put himself in various forms and various things, but it's still one God. It's still the same God. He's still doing the same thing. He still believes the same gospel. He still teaches the same gospel. It's not a trinity. And if it is a trinity, then we need to believe in a million other gods. But it's one God who formed himself into various aspects so that we could understand it as human beings. Because I don't understand the big transcendent God. I just don't. So he has to begin to form himself so that I can begin to understand the way that he wants things to be understood in Jesus' name. And I'm thankful for a God that it's done that for us. I'm thankful for a God that doesn't just say, man, what a bunch of idiots down there running around doing all these goofy wars and this sort of thing. I'm thankful for a God that's not saying that, doing, doing that sort of stuff. But he says, you know what? I want them to understand me and understand who I am. And so he doesn't begin to use these big words to confuse us, but he just uses words to try to help these things explain these things to us. And so continuing on with this scripture here, it says, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Speaking about Jesus, that he's going to reign until all of these enemies are put under his feet in Jesus' name. So that means that we have victory in Christianity. So in God's plan of redemption, he has determined that the Messiah will accomplish the subduing of all of the enemies. The Messiah referring to Jesus. In other words, all of God's enemies will be conquered by means of the incarnation, of that, that portion of him. That's how these things will be conquered. Uh, this God transcendent, but the God incarnate, which is Jesus Christ. God has determined to conquer all of sin's consequences, not by means of his transcendence or eminence, but by means of his manifestation in the flesh. Redemption is rooted in that incarnation. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And so to say that Christ must reign till he has subdued all enemies does not mean that he will no longer reign after that point in time. But it means that his reign will extend up to that time without specifically commenting on what will occur after that point. We see that in scripture. Continuing with this here, it says that John indicated that Christ's reign will extend throughout eternity. That Christ's reign will extend throughout eternity. And it goes on to say in this scripture that we're reading here, that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is ultimately death. So I know I'm reading a lot of this, but I'm really just trying to make it clear. Is anybody, everybody understanding me? Is everybody kind of following along here? I know this is a lot. I know there's a lot that's here. And do you have any comments at this point in time? Okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. Perfect. 
It is. It's, it's, a, it's a huge subject that we could spend weeks on in all reality. And I'm really not trying to confuse people. And please, if you get confused by anything here tonight, you come see us and we will we'll explain this even more. I, I know I'm, I'm using all sorts of terms, but we have to in order to understand some of this. And so verses 24 through 28, it depicts death as Christ's final enemy. And he will conquer it by means of the resurrection. Christ has already conquered death personally but he will conquer it universally at some point in time. And we are a part of that in Jesus' name, that universal conquering of death where we get to put a spear in and say, you know what, you thought you had me, but not anymore. Not anymore, but I get to go to his kingdom and dance around in Jesus' name. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, for he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things that are put under him, is manifest that he is expected, which did put all things under him. And so, again, this is saying that Jesus is going to rule over these things. It's going to be under his feet in what we are speaking about. Paul, in the subjection of all things to Christ, as the full, or Paul saw the subjection of all things to Christ as the fulfillment of Psalm 8 and 6. And it says this, uh, well, I thought I had it wrote down here, but I don't. But the subjection... <laughs> I apologize. Of all things, the Christ includes only the created realm. God the Father is not subjected to the Messiah. It is God the Father who has subjected the created realm to the Messiah. But he said this, these things are going to be ruled upon by Jesus. That is there. Yes, awesome. Thou madest him to have dominion over thy works of thy hands, and thou hast put all things under his feet. He's going back to that scripture. He's talking about those things that are there. And so again, going back to 1 Corinthians, what Paul told us here, he says, And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And so this God the Father, the transcendent God that we're speaking about, God above and beyond the incarnation, he's above and beyond what he did there, and thus above and beyond this created realm that we are in right now. The subjection of God incarnate to God transcendent is that God may be all in all, or that God may rule also from the standpoint of his deity, or being this God, not only from the standpoint of his identification with the created realm in the incarnation. I understand there's a lot there, but let me try to break that down just a little bit here. So this God transcendent, if he truly began to break himself down and be in our midst, he would not be the God that is the God above all. He would not be the God that has the wisdom to do the things that he does. He would not be the God to create the world and to create this scripture because he would be thinking like us. He would be in our midst. He would be seeing these things around us. So for this big God to be um, constantly in our midst and that sort of thing, it, it, would, it cannot happen. It, it cannot be around. And that's why Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. And so God form that portion of himself to come down here in our midst. And so when he was down here amongst us, that's God in the flesh as well. So that's why the scripture is saying that Jesus Christ is going to deliver these things to God that's there. So basically what he's saying is that when we resurrect and we go up into heaven, what we have here amongst us in this midst here 
isn't going to be around us anymore. We aren't going to have the consequences of time, of, of our restrictions of thought, of our restrictions of diet, all those sort of things. All these things that restrict us down here as human beings now, when we begin to be lifted up and we're taken to that place where God dwells at, and, and we, we will never be at his full level, but when we at least get close enough that we can begin to understand those things, that's where we're going to be delivered or switched over and that sort of thing. And that's what this is speaking about, is that Jesus is going to deliver us or take us to that place where we can begin to understand that in Jesus' name, and that's what he has done through the resurrection. And so the religious world, or there are many today, even among Christians, who view Christianity as primarily an ethical religion. In the religious world, they offer a variety of perspectives of the future, ranging from reincarnation to the cessation of existence for humans. But the Christian faith is one that speaks specifically of the resurrection because we know and we understand it's the one and the only uh, religion that truly believes in the resurrection, that there's a God that came and died for us, and as a result, we will be able to be resurrected in Him, in Jesus' name. And so the doctrine of the resurrection, it's central to the Christian faith. Not other religions, not these other beliefs, but it's essential to our religion. It's what we believe in, in Jesus' name, and it's what makes our religion so different from others, that we have a God that doesn't just want us to be persecuted and hurt and that sort of stuff, but he wants us to come and dwell with him at a certain point in time. And this is the big plan that he came up with so that we could dwell with him at a certain point in time, that he himself would send, you know, manifest in the flesh, Jesus Christ here on this earth, so that we could die and we could go and live with him in Jesus' name. So you can ask yourself this question here. I don't have time to take responses. I apologize tonight. But can a person who denies the possibility of the resurrection be a genuine Christian? Can somebody who denies the resurrection be a genuine question, Christian? And I, I think we, we understand that. Everybody says no. That's our response in Jesus' name. And I think we've spoken of that. And so it's precisely here that the Christian faith stands forth in distinction from so many other places around us. From every non-Christian religion and from every form of skepticism around us, this is where we draw the line and we make a big difference between all of them and all of us here. And I'm not trying to make it a them versus us thing here, but we absolutely, Christianity, God has done this differently than what you see in some of these other cultures or religions. The gospel declares that Jesus Christ did raise from the dead, validating his claim to be the Messiah and providing him to be the Son of God. His resurrection means that there is hope after all and that the enemy that has seemed so final to all of us, which is death, has been conquered. And this life is not all there is. Every grave shall open and a joyous eternity awaits those who are, who are in Christ at this point in time. That's an awesome thing to think about. And when you begin to look at this, you'll see this, that the doctrine of the resurrection puts suffering in perspective. And when we think about the long-term perspective of what's going to happen here, it becomes a little easier dwelling in the things that we're dwelling in right now. It becomes a little bit more minor to you know, get over some of these things that we make a big deal in, in today's world and that sort of thing. I, I'm not trying to make light of some of the situations that you all have went through, and I've went through some of them myself, but it begins to show us that a job loss, I understand it's big in the moment, but really in reality, and when you begin to think about eternity, 
it's really not that big. Or when God asks us to do something very simple as far as going down in his water, or receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, or living a holy life and doing some things and not doing other things, those really aren't that big of situations that we need to make big deals out of because, man, they're, they're just real minor things compared to the big scope of this. It puts suffering in perspective that, man, if, if I had to do this for 100 years, so be it. But, man, you know what? On the flip side, it's going to be for your eternity. It's going to be 100 times, 100 times, 100, and you can keep going down the list, and it's not going to matter at that point in time because I'm not going to be in heaven moping about and thinking, man, I wish I would have got that job when I was down there, and this thing would have... It's just not going to be that way. And, and if you all are going to dwell on that up there, then I'm going to push you aside. But we're, I don't think we are in Jesus' name. We're going to be so excited. It's going to be so awesome that we're going to forget about all those down here and the things that were here in Jesus' name. It puts suffering in so much perspective that Jesus went through so much for every one of us. There's a promise of a state of being that there's something better. We see that the consequence, the most frightening consequence of death, that it's swallowed up in victory. And it provides a motivation for believers to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord as we read in the Scripture. And it assumes that their labor is not done in the vein of the Lord, but it's done for a purpose. All human beings will continue to exist, for Christ's essential humanness is no different than our humanness at this particular point. And if he had declared that his human nature at the point of his death, not only would he have experienced a bodily resurrection, but neither would we have any certainty about our future if he said that this was not going to happen. But he obviously showed us that it was going to happen, and that it would happen in Jesus' name. And so that brings us to our final point here tonight, and it says this, that the resurrection of Jesus authenticates Old Testament prophecy. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ it authentic, uh, authenticates Old Testament prophecy. You, you can see this all throughout there. I, and again, like I said, the prophecies that are in the Scripture that spoke about Jesus coming and, and what he would do, that he would be this wonderful counselor. It also speaks about him being the mighty Savior and, and these various things in that prophecy. It happened. It was real. It was there. But now it's beginning to show us that the prophecies that are dwelling upon Jesus' second coming are now coming to pass in the world that's around us. We are living in an incredible time right now that so many people were not able to experience. And we have the opportunity to participate in the resurrection. I know that so much of this tonight was just deep stuff, and, and you're like, man, do I even really need to know some of that stuff? And in reality, you, you don't necessarily have to know all the craziness of the, the in-between stuff there. But what you do have to know is that Jesus is coming back again, that he will be here at some point in time, there will be a resurrection, and that we have an obligation to be prepared for it. It's not just good enough to be a good person, but we have to begin to search the Scripture and say, what does God want from me? Because the Bible says that there were good people in the... Uh, Jesus spoke about this, that there's going to be good people in the end times that are going to go to heaven, but God's going to say, you know what? I didn't know you. I didn't know you. There are going to be good people that are going to come to that place there, and they did miracles even, and they did these things in the name of the Lord, but they didn't know Him. So we must still, it's showing us it's essential, we must still have a walk with him. And it's not hard, it's not difficult, it's not crazy, but it's just reaching out to him and saying, God, I desire you, as we were singing that song earlier tonight. God, I want to reach out to you and have a part of you and listening to that scripture and those things that are there. And that's how we participate in this resurrection. And so one last question for you to ponder tonight, and I'll read this and conclude, but how does the promise of the victory over death and even the removal of all tears 
in Revelation 7:17 influence your thoughts about the end of life on this earth. Because it says that in this scripture in Revelation 7:17 that even tears will be removed in heaven. How awesome would that be? Never having to mope around or cry again. It's just gone. It's disappeared because we will die and we will resurrect with something different than what we have on here. Because there is a change there, and that's why the resurrection happens. I don't want to take this flesh with me. I want to take what he has to put me in that glorified body as well, in Jesus' name. And so it says this. It says Christ with him, early church father and orator, he deplored the uh, ostentatious public lamentations that were made at Christian funerals in his day. He said this, When I behold the wailings in public places, the groanings over those who have departed this life, the howlings and the other unseemly behavior, I am ashamed before the heathen and the Jews and heretics who see it, and indeed before all those for this reason laugh us to scorn. He complained that such conduct had the effect of nullifying his teaching on the resurrection and encouraged the heathen to continue in unbelief. And he asked what could be more unseemingly than for a person who professes to be crucified to the world to tear his hair and shriek hysterically in the presence of death. Those who are really worthy to be lamented, he admonished, are the ones who are still in fear and trembling at the prospect of death and have no faith at all in the resurrection. Then he drove home his point with these arresting words. May God grant that you all depart this life unwailed. What he was speaking about here is not just talking about mourning the death of somebody, because that, the scripture says that, that there is a time and a season for that, absolutely. But what he's speaking about here is continuing on in the future of just, uh, not, not necessarily mourning that, but taking this to the extreme of just going to the, the nth degree of, you know, why did this person have to pass and that sort of thing? It's going to happen. It's going to be there. But we as Christians can celebrate that and be excited. That's why apostolic funerals are some of the best things to be a part of because, man, they aren't the funeral where you sit there and that sort of thing. There's tears shed, but, man, you're excited because you're like, I know, I know where that person is at, that it's so much better than what is here. And so this goes on to say that our bodies are corruptible, but they will not always be. They will put on incorruption, and we are mortal, but that is not our final fate. And we, are, we will put on immortality. The promise that death is swallowed up in victory did not await the writing of the New Testament to be revealed. Isaiah, in the 8th century B.C., wrote that he will swallow up death and victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Paul knew that this ancient book, and he wrote, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. John knew Isaiah also, and he wrote, for the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto the living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. So if you want the real fountain of youth, you want to live forever, you read this scripture here, but he says, man, you lead them to those waters, those fountains there, and you can be refreshed for all of eternity in Jesus' name. If we could stand tonight, I know that this was a, a deep lesson. There was a lot here, a lot spoken. And so let's just pray that God would open our hearts to that. And take this home, study it. If there's anything that has confused you tonight here, begin to let God reveal it to you. Read these scriptures over and over again and let him speak to that in Jesus' name.